The Future of Electric Propulsion. Dear audience, my name is Ludmila Der. I'm the Managing Director of Elite Experts Conferences and I would like to welcome you to the next episode of the Elite Experts Conferences podcast. Whether at live events or in the digital world, we bring together cool promising tech startups with exciting innovative global players and generate a platform where the world of sustainable technology meets. Get to know the different companies, but also the inspiring leader personalities behind these brand names. Our motto is towards a better and cleaner future through knowledge transfer and technology. Our guests today are Nick Gruel and David Hudson from ePropelled. Nick Gruel is CEO and President at ePropelled. Nick, you have a very exciting background. You are an experienced technology entrepreneur and investor in over 40 high-tech companies. And you have led engineering, business development and operational teams at many companies. In the 90s, you started OnLake Investments, a successful investment company. Prior to OnLake, you were the founder and CEO of Nashoba Networks, which was acquired by Cisco Systems for $100 million. You even remained there a vice president. However, after a while, you felt the urge to start a startup again, and that at an age when others are retiring. I just have to mention it because I'm so impressed by it. You are in fact almost 70 years old and you founded ePropel three years ago, which is focusing on electric propulsion. And now to our second guest, David Hudson. Dave, you are a very, very familiar face in the EV field. It's really impossible to work in that field and not to know you. Dave, you have over 40 years of experience in engineering and professional services. You spent over 15 years at Jaguar Cars before moving into automotive consultancy, working with leading powertrain companies in Europe, Asia and North America. For the past decade, you worked at the Tata Motors European Technical Center as Head of Propulsion and Head of Vehicle and Powertrain Engineering. And now you have been with ePropelled for two months as Head of EV Strategy. So much for the introduction. Now let's talk about developments in the automotive industry, innovative thinking, higher purpose of ePropelled, courage and magic of a new start, business corporations, and of course, self-development and motivation. Nick, let's mentally travel three years into the past. What is the founding story of ePropelled? You know, I have few passions. I was very lucky to actually be able to have these passions. About three years ago, I decided that I ought to think about getting an electric car. So I started researching everybody's electric cars. Being a little bit of an engineering mind, I said, boy, let's take a look at Tesla. Let's take a look at this. So I looked at Model S. Model S in those days used to have induction motor. And I was shocked and surprised. And I said to myself, God, this is 120-year-old technology. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better motor. So we started to actually, I started to think about how we can actually build it. And then also decided that it was time to actually start a new company because I was getting bored. So at the tender age of 66, you know, most people are retiring. I decided that I've been retired long enough because I really didn't have to work that hard since, since I was 44, actually. So I took 20 years off and I said, well, okay, I've got the retirement done. It's time to go back to work. So, so I actually formed ePropelled. And when I went to the, um, the lawyers in Boston, 
And they said, okay, we'll be happy to do it. And said, okay, what do you want to call it? I said, Electric Propulsion, uh, Electric Propulsion Inc. They said, you can't do that, you know, because it's the definition. So I said, you know, think of something else. So I went away, walked around town, and in an hour I went back with four different uh, names. And E-Propelled happened to be the one that rolled off my tongue the best. So E-Propelled was formed, so the, the, that was in um, May of 2018. Then after that, I started looking at where should we set up the company and sort of put the band back together, my, my guys from the internet days, then we actually started thinking about, you know, who's got the best patents. And it turned out the best patents were in UK. So I was racing at Silverstone, you know, that year. I was going to come back to the States. So the weekend was over on Monday morning. I was going to go to the airport. It turned out I had the date wrong. My flight was actually on Tuesday. So I said, I've got a day to actually look after and do things. So I called up Nabil. I said, that was Monday morning around nine o'clock. And I said, can I come and see you? He said, yeah, sure. So I jumped on the train, went to, from, went to Cardiff from London. And um, I was there somewhere around 12.30. We went to lunch and I really liked the guy. I said, look, I want to license your patents exclusive for car use, you know, or vehicle use. And I want it worldwide. And he said, yeah, sure, I don't see any problem. I'm not doing car stuff. And um, so that's how it started. And then after talking to him three or four times, I said, what if we, um, what if ePropelled just merges your company, uh, Electronica, into ePropelled? And he said, if you want to buy the company, go and talk to my investors. So I went and talked to the investors. And uh, now this is really interesting, Ludmilla, because they were very inspiring. One was a guy named Len, he was 90. And the other one was Peter, he was 94. These two Welsh guys were his investors. So I went and talked to him and said, you know, you can really, this company could become really big and the world needs this. And you ought to think about actually selling this, you know, and so that we can actually build it into something big. And they said, well, you know, um, Let's sit down and talk. This is what we got into it. If we got, if we, if you can come up with something like that, then um, then we'll give you the keys. And so I said, okay, let's shake hands. And uh, the next thing was, e propelled at that time in the summer of um, eighteen got merged into e propelled. And uh, so we got the best patents, we got the best technology, and Nabil at that time was doing work in the aerospace with with UAVs and things, building motors and stuff. So I wanted to build cars and build propulsion systems for car, cars. So that was a really great marriage. So the second thing was the lawyers got done with the acquisition in October. And then I stayed in England for about three months, making sure I got my you know hands around the technology and everything else. Then came back in the beginning of 19 and set up uh, the office here in Lowell, Massachusetts, where we are right now. This is an old mill. It's actually almost 120 years old. And they used to do spinning of cloth from cotton. So it's really appropriate from that industry to the new industry. And the, our offices are fantastic. Every time we get visitors here, they're always very excited. So there, there's a connection to the old and the new.
What a story. Amazing. And really like a lot of your interests came together. It's interest for engineering. It's interest for racing because it's like a coincidence that you have been then in UK exactly at that time. And also like your interest for cars and electric vehicles, right? And actually at the very early beginning. Amazing. Yes, indeed. Thank you. You're very kind. Dave, looking at your fascinating background story and knowing you positioning in the industry, one can see that you were drawn to EVs also quite early on. How come? What was your motivation in doing so? So I've been heavily involved in EVs probably for the last six or seven years. Um, Tata Motors, which is where I've been for the last 13 years before joining Nick, uh, was actually one of the early arrivals on the EV scene uh, and actually had a complete vehicle homologated in Europe back in 2009. I wasn't directly involved in that project, but the company, and particularly in Europe, had this core technology for EVs. And as my career evolved through Tata Motors, I started to get involved in some of the follow-on EV projects. In particular, we were looking at, at one point, doing an electric version of the Tata Nano, the the, uh, small car that was launched in 2009. And uh, I was chief engineer for a study phase of that project, And that started to get me quite excited about the idea of EVs and particularly small EVs. So, you know, Nick came to the company through the the high end of it, through the interest in the Model S. Um, I actually came to it from the other direction of looking at what a minimal EV might look like, um, particularly oriented towards city use, um, because I think that's really the big opportunity for electrification coming up. So that really got my interest in looking at what the enablers were for small EVs. And of course, the, you know, one of the barriers of those those days was uh, battery cost. And we, when we did the Vista project the, the, in, in 2008-2009, battery costs were over $1,000 a kilowatt hour compared to today when we're perhaps under $150. So massive, massive reductions in cost. But while we were still had those very high battery prices, the the challenge was how to get an EV to work with a minimal battery size. And that's when I really started to get interested in the idea of highly efficient EVs. You know, lightweight is important for efficiency and lots of battery is bad for lightweight. So you don't want lots of battery because of that. And you certainly don't want it for cost. So I started to get, you know, get involved in it then. And, you know, the last few years, particularly, I've continued to uh, push the agenda uh, really towards uh, efficient EVs for city use. And when I was uh, introduced to Nick, which was not very long after the uh, the story that he's just told you about the foundation of the company, it was evident that we had, you know, for completely different reasons, very similar views. And Nick and I clicked quite quickly in terms of being uh, sort of like minds, but coming from different directions. And so for the last two years, I've been involved as an advisor to, to ePropelled. Uh, and for the last two months, I've been an employee. So, um, it, it, uh, you know, I think it's a really exciting opportunity to take uh, both the, the uh, interest that Nick had in updating the world and my interest in finding a solution for high efficiency and just bringing those two things together. Sounds absolutely like a good match. And now to Nick, it's really outstanding at what age you founded ePropelled. I really have to express my personal enthusiasm to you. I'm almost half as young as you. And when I think about getting older, at your age, I want to have the same energy level as you and also to burn inside full of enthusiasm for a project 
and also be able to execute it skillfully. What is the higher purpose of ePropelled? What is your driving force in this project? Okay, Lord Bella, let me give you a quote from a fella in England who actually was pretty famous, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill actually said that if everybody has fun at their work, nobody will be working. So that basically means that work would not be work anymore, it'd be fun. And this is what I really enjoy. I've been very lucky to actually have landed back in the early 80s into the internet industry. And it was fantastic building that industry. And in fact, I became very curious about how industries actually evolve, you know, from being very embryonic to, you know, mid-age and, you know, beyond. And you can actually take a look at the steam industry. You can look at the car industry, the computer industry, the internet industry. And now we're about to enter a new industry. It's really very exciting. And I love the fact that there is so much energy and work going on in this industry. It's, it's like, I don't, I don't feel like, you know, I'm my age or anything like that. I just love coming in, having fun and having a great team. And I think we built a great team where we have, you know, in the last 30 odd months, we, we actually got up to 70 people. And it, it's great to actually build this thing and have fun with it. And the other part of it is that I think before COVID hit, it was let's try and clean up the world, let's be green and so on. And I'm a true believer of that. But during COVID, the whole thing accelerated, actually. You know, people started to see Himalayas from 200 miles away. And a lot of the air started getting cleaned up. This is a real enabler for us to think what is possible. And while we're around, why wouldn't we want to make that happen? And so, you know, I think the whole idea of electric propulsion is a great thing. At the end of the day, the way I see it, it's not the cars that are causing or any other vehicle that are causing all the issues in the world. It's the engines that we're using. It's what's coming out of the pipe of the engine that is actually causing the issues. So I basically decided that I think we, I don't want to build cars. I don't want to build flying cars. I don't want to build UAVs. You know, I don't want to do any of that stuff. But what I want to be is I want to be the Intel inside, you know, every vehicle. And that way, you're actually attacking something that's really important in the world. And, you know, while we're doing it, we can have a lot of fun, as we did in the internet industry. It's like putting the band back together and doing and going out on a tour and doing some gigs And that's the way I like to think of it. It's not just, you know, that we're having fun. I like the idea of a lot of people around us having fun and actually doing something good for the world. And that's, that's what's driving me. That will have a huge impact on the world, actually. And I wish you many, many years of good health and a lot of energy. Thank you. Uh, you know, I've given up, you know, uh, the thing that I said to you before, Peter and Len, Electronica and Nabil's old investors, They really inspired me. Peter still works. He's still at, he's now 97 and he's still building power stations. And I told him that when I grow up, I want to be like you, Peter. You know, so, so, so the retirement is done. It's out of the way now, you know. So I think it's, it's as long as we can actually keep going. You know, with you both, actually, I found my 
role model when it's uh, when it's connected to getting older so <laughs> absolutely my inspiration <laughs> from now on <laughs> dave you have recently changed from the tata motors european technical center to e-propelled in other words from the usual corporate structure to a startup a whole new world awaits you what are you looking forward to the most Well, I think as we've just heard from Nick, the, the, the fun element of being part of this uh, dynamic team, I was already a little bit aware of it from the couple of years I was in the advisory role. We had you know, quarterly meetings and uh, Nick and the senior management team would uh, join those meetings. And it was evident that this was a company that had a serious purpose, but didn't take life too seriously in doing so. And, you know, there was um, humor, there was, um, there, there, there was a feeling of genuine warmth about the whole thing. I think in conversations with Nick before I actually made the, uh, made the, the switch from Tata Motors, it, you know, it was evident that the passion that uh, we've just heard in the stories that Nick's been telling us, uh, the passion was something that perhaps is easy to lose in a big company, but a small company almost can't survive without that passion. So, Uh, the thing that I'd perhaps missed without knowing I was missing it in, in Tata was the, the daily sort of excitement about not quite knowing what was going to happen next and not quite knowing where the next call was going to come and what the direction would follow. And certainly, you know, the, the, the big purpose is very clear, but the day-to-day -day dynamic around that is something that, that really is quite, uh, uh, quite exciting and quite invigorating. And, um, you know, Nick was you know, just talking about this having fun piece. And uh, uh, we just the other day had, a, had an all hands company meeting uh, where, you know, you know, Nick basically spent an hour talking to us on that very theme and getting people's reactions to it and asking people, you know, when, when was the last time you had fun? And, and I think most of them were saying, well, it was in an old job, but, but this job's great. This is really fun. So, uh, so I'm looking really forward to being part of that and. Uh, you know, being part of uh, of Nick's first line team and making a difference to ePropel's ability to deliver that vision and Nick's Nick's vision across the uh, across the world. I think it's really visible that you have a lot of fun and how you also collaborate with each other, how you, how you handle each other. So it's it's really amazing to observe that. I mean, it's not our first meeting, so I can really already have a sense for that. Nick, you guys are mainly in two markets at ePropelled. Could you tell us a bit more about your positioning and what your plan is specifically for the automotive industry? Right. Well, one of the reasons for actually saying that we want to be the best electric motor company in the world or best propulsion company in the world, actually, to be, to be precise, I looked at lots of companies around the world and they were really good and they have huge amount of money invested into plants building gas engines. Now, you know, I think lots of those companies have had problems trying to actually figure out how do they transition from building those gas engines to electric propulsion engines. Now, we also look at this whole thing as a holistic uh, approach, meaning that it's an energy equation. You know, in a vehicle, you've got to have energy. Whatever that energy is, whether it's gas, you know, or it's electric, or it's hydrogen, you've got to be able to put that energy into the car very quickly. You can't wait long time to do that. And the second part of that equation is how much energy do you actually have in that vehicle? Um, and the third part of the equation is where we come in. How do you deploy that energy in the most efficient way? 
So I think we want to be efficient, not just our motor is 98% efficient or, you know, and the other people's are 97% efficient. That's not what we are all about. Our positioning is that we want to be able to take a look at the holistic approach and also the deployment of that energy. You know, uh, how, how, how does the car actually behave? You know, what kind of roads does it go on? We want to be able to learn that and modify our, our application um, in such a way that it will give you real efficiency. So we're not talking about one or two percent. We're talking about 20, 25, 30 percent type of uh, efficiency. And that's a huge thing. If we can do that, we will be the premier company in the electric vehicle space. I think that is what our goal is. Sounds ambitious, but feasible. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> I would never say something is impossible. And I mean, it's always impossible until it's done. So that's, that's for sure in the tech. Actually, what I say, Ludmilla, is impossible just takes a little bit longer. Exactly. Absolutely. But we are all optimists. And also, I mean, I, I call myself actually a realistic optimist. But anyway, <laughs> it's all based on tech. That's right. That's right. Dave, you are very, very familiar with the developments and trends in the automotive industry. What are currently the biggest challenges in this, now let's call it, transition period? Well, you know, as, as you said, we're in a traditional industry. You know, we're, we're 100 and I've lost count now, 150 years and counting or something in the automotive industry today, 140, depending on where you, where you count the start point. Obviously, you know, the, the interesting cycle is that back in those early decades of the automotive industry, electric was normal. Uh, and in fact, I, be I believe Nick even owns a car, an electric car from that very era in his collection. But three, okay, right, corrected, three. But, you know, then for, for technology reasons, the, the electric stream just slowed down and stopped and internal combustion became the, the, the norm. And so, you know, now we've got an industry that is trying to rediscover, in fact, the charm that, that, the, that the industry did know in the early 1900s, that the, uh, the, the reasons why electric cars were appreciated then are exactly the same reasons they're appreciated now, that they're quiet, they're smooth, they're easy to drive. And, you know, now we've got to educate a whole new series of customers because, of course, none of the customers today were the, were the same people that uh, would have bought those original cars. And finding a way to bring this new set of customers with new expectations and, of course, much, much, much better technology than we had in those days, bringing all that together and displacing something that we've worked you know, very hard for the last certainly half a century. We've worked really hard at optimizing internal combustion engine as a power source, making it as acceptable as it can be. You know, the remarkable story of emissions reduction over the you know the decades since the sort of clean air act period in the 70s it's a fantastic engineering achievement but now we have to persuade all of the engineers and scientists that have led that charge to put it all on the shelf and say yeah thanks for doing it but you don't need it anymore you don't need it where we're going that's actually the big challenge and along with that the challenge of changing the supply chain Uh, so that all the traditional people that you bought stuff from and the traditional manufacturing routes and processes you had in-house all have to change. Uh, you know, the car itself doesn't change, but the powertrain is, you know, 100% different. There are no carryover parts. 
uh, and for the automotive industry, that's a pretty scary thing because, uh, you know, evolution has been the story and very few people have successfully brought revolution to the industry in the past, you know, many decades. Uh, and I think, you know, what we can thank uh, uh, the folks at Tesla for doing is waking the world up to the fact that a brand new car company that knew nothing at all about cars could suddenly turn up with an earth-shattering idea and actually make everybody pay attention to them. Whether they become, you know, the dominant company in the long future, I think, you know, is very, you know, debated in many more forums than this one. But the undeniable truth is that they have woken up an entire industry to the fact that, you know, and as Nick said, you know, that, that they're, they're all doing it wrong and they've got to, got to change the way. So that's the transition I'm excited about. It's the, you know, breaking this existing thinking, creating a, a brand new supply chain and delivering uh, attributes in the vehicles that have never, ever been available before. But as you mentioned, the human factor, this one will be really, really challenging. So like the whole re-education and transformation of the industry. But you know what, Ludmilla, I mean, I mean, Nick referred to the sort of COVID effect a little bit earlier. We, the, the images that went around the world within those first few months of lockdowns around the world, to me, were absolutely eye-opening because the, you know, there was a famous picture that was doing the rounds of a, a split-screen photograph of the India Gate in Delhi. Uh, you know, Delhi is a renowned for poor air quality, and you know I've been there, lived there. You know, it's it's not not a great place to uh, to to live and bring up your kids and all that stuff. And the fact that all of it, uh, over the period of just a few weeks of of um, automotive traffic having been cut way back because of the lockdowns, suddenly the air quality changed. And you know, we in the automotive industry, we knew we were damaging the environment. You know, we've been apologetic about it. We've tried, but everybody said, yeah, but it's a long-term effect. You can't fix it quickly. You can. You know, I know upper atmosphere and global warming and all that is a much bigger picture and much more slow moving. But at a local level, local air quality is a major issue. You know, it's a health issue. It's a quality of life issue. And we proved that by removing internal combustion engine vehicles for just a period of you know, weeks, months, made a difference. And I think that actually woke up a lot of people to the fact that all this switching that governments were talking about in pursuit of you know, one and a half degrees, two degrees, some number that didn't make any sense to any people, all of a sudden it came into their backyards and they understood that it made the difference between having air they could breathe and, you know, improve their, their physical health um, and not doing that. So, you know, and I think that's been reported as being one of the reasons why showroom traffic in, has been driven towards electrification uh, around the world, because people know that they can make a difference. And let's hope that this kind of waking up will be also a driving force for the changes and not just let's hope, let's act. Nick, you have a very, very strong slogan in your logo that says e-propelled, the future of electric propulsion. Well, what is the future of electric propulsion? Where is the journey going? It isn't just e-propelled. We actually came up with this almost three years ago when we actually started the company. And now um, in the last 30 to 36 months, you've actually seen pretty much every company in the world actually say the future of propulsion is electric, okay? Uh, you've seen it from 
Jaguar Land Rover, from Tata, from Ford, from GM, from BMW, Audi, they all say that by certain date, whether it's 2025 or 2030, you know, it's going to be, they're going to be electric. So, you know, this is not, this is a prediction that we started three years ago. At that time, it wasn't really that clear that the future of propulsion is electric. Now, I can say other things about it. I think the electric motor or and the propulsion system in the car is very important. But the, the, the fuel or the energy that it comes from, it's really not, the people are still debating that. Is it the batteries? Is the battery cost going to keep going down? Or is it, um, if, you know, fuel cells? Is it hydrogen fuel cells? And, you know, how would that work? And we, we really don't care which energy we use. At the end of the day, our job is very simple and very focused. We want to be the best propulsion. And how we actually get that energy, that electrical energy, from whatever source we get it from, we don't care. We hope that we get the most efficient. I hope that the battery technology and the materials keep getting cleaner and better. And I hope the hydrogen fuel cells actually have a space and they actually uh, get deployed. And at the end of the day, it's going to be, you know, what kind of infrastructure do we actually build around the world? Where are the, you know, charging stations or where is the gas, you know, hydrogen fuel cell filling stations? That infrastructure has to be built, but we know it's going to be. You know, it's, there isn't a choice now anymore. I don't think anybody would argue with us that the future of propulsion is electric, whether it's in the air or it's on the ground or it's out at sea. People are talking about, you know, uh, now I think it was Norway or Finland, they, they introduced a ferry that was, that's all electric, which is great. I think it's great for us to see that. I think it, it's cleaning up. It, it, the cleaning up process is already happening. 100 years ago, it was the coal and the steam that had to be cleaned up. So, you know, they brought in the gas engines, they cleaned up to a certain point. I remember when I was a kid, and I'm sure David probably remembers this as well, most of the buildings in London, when I went to college there and I went to school there, all the buildings were all black. They're not black anymore. And I think now it's a next level of cleanup that the world needs. And we're very excited about that. I don't think anybody can argue, Lord Miller. Not anymore. As you said, also, the pandemic accelerated a lot of changes also in the, in the mindset. Yeah. Right. Dave, what is a typical project or a typical application for e-propelled technology? Well, it, it's a little hard to say typical because, you know, we are young and, uh, you know, the, the opportunities are just beginning to get developed. But that said, the things we are already working on do have a pattern. And, and generally, they are customers in the automotive space, either people today already in the automotive space, or uh, many of the, you know, the startups on the vehicle side, you know, the, the company Nick didn't want to form, uh, which is a which is a vehicle startup, they're all coming with the same challenge, which is that they might know about building a vehicle, but they need to have that propulsion element put into place. And the challenge that many of them have is that the traditional tier one suppliers, the traditional automotive suppliers, have their hands full right now because they are having to make this transition that we talked about a little earlier of going from being you know, suppliers of gasoline components and diesel components to suppliers of electric. 
So they've got lots of internal challenges. They also have established major customer relationships that they've got to keep along with. And many of these sort of younger, more vigorous startup companies are actually out of options when it comes to suppliers for electrification components. And we have seen a great deal of interest already from, uh, and in particular, uh, you know, I'm happy to say from my uh, you know, previous sort of home territory of India, um, it's one of the most vigorous markets for us at the moment because they're all looking at, they're all looking at creating new vehicle types that will fit into a, a more electric uh, scene and uh, you know, looking forward to perhaps banning of, of uh, IC engines in certain cities and certain vehicle categories. So, you know, we see two-wheeler manufacturers, you know, small motorcycles, scooters, the three-wheeler segment, both passenger carriers, you know, the famous tuk-tuks uh, and uh, the um, three-wheeler goods carriers as well. Those are all really, really similar sets of applications. And so we're, we're um, working with companies in that space uh, and also now just starting to get the, uh, the more traditional, the four-wheeler vehicles, you know, the bigger uh, bigger vehicles you know, into the small end of the the automotive space. So as far as a typical project goes, it is a customer that says, "I know what I need, but I can't find one. Can you build me one?" That would be the summary of it. And of course, the answer is yes. <laughs> yes, we can. <laughs> yes, we can. <laughs> Nick, Dave, uh, or at least try to give us more the typical application of your technology. But what was so far the most unusual project? Okay, we've actually had uh, customers that are coming to us that want to build electrically propelled agricultural machines, tillers, things like um, tractors and so on, all the way up to flying cars. We're actually working very closely with a company that is trying to build a flying car. And I think there are a lot of companies out there that are trying to build flying cars right now. You've probably seen many concepts out there. But, but the gambit goes from all the way down from agriculture all the way up to, up to that point. Actually, so, you know, you're talking about two-wheelers, three-wheelers, four-wheelers, as we're talking about, that's, that's the space that we're concentrating on because there are more four-wheelers in the world than pretty much anything else. But the markets are huge, but they all need stuff. And I think we're getting companies that want mopeds, that we want companies that uh, want to uh, electrify rickshaws, you know, uh, companies that want to electrify, you know, cars, uh, buses, trucks, as well as UAV drones. You know, there are drones that are doing agriculture work, medical delivery stuff. All these type of customers are coming to us. It's amazing. How, how much interest we've actually raised out there. And of course, the top end of the chain is the flying cars. And we want to actually, when we grow up, we really like the idea of actually replacing engines in aircraft. I think that will be really terrific. And every one of these engines is one thing in common. They all use gas and we want to convert it to to electric, and if we can do that, we'll be really there. It's a, you know, whenever I started companies in the past, I've always said, you got to focus. And in this case, focus is so large, it's unbelievable. But we want to try and make sure that we always stick to that electric propulsion machine, not to the batteries, not to this, not to that, just that one thing. And if we can be really good at it, we'll have a really big company. 
Actually, then you will have a broad variety of application, right? If you just stick to that and it's your focus. Yeah. That's right. A really unusual application. We are actually building electric propulsion for pumps. They're huge customers and they're talking about 100,000 to 200,000 motors for these applications like hot tubs. You know, this is something that we don't even talk about. But these are, these are really applications that are, you know, let's replace existing motors with much more efficient motors. At the end of the day, our story, if we can win, there'll be a lot of people making propulsion. There's no question. Okay. But I think what we want to be is the most efficient propulsion system in the world. If we can succeed at that, then I think we'll have a real, real good company and we'll do some real good work. Amazing goal. And I hope there's also a plan behind that. <laughs> no need to reveal that now. Okay. <laughs> and Dave, now let's talk a little bit more about the two and three wheelers engine systems. You're offering also this technology for, for those kind of uh, engine system, and among other things, as you both said. Does this have anything to do with the fact that you see yourself fundamentally more in the area of small engines? Or is there any other strategic reason why you're looking at these markets in particular? Well, yeah, as you say, there's, there appears to be a focus at the moment on smaller solutions. And I think that's actually got a lot of factors in it. One of them, and we actually started looking at sort of strategy a little while ago, where we were looking over our shoulders, looking behind and saying, where has the center of gravity of the market been in terms of the size of electric motors? And, uh, you know, making the perfectly reasonable assumption that that's the, the right place to aim for. But actually, we've realized that the story is going to change because the average power uh, of an electrified vehicle is actually going to start to come down in the future because the vehicles that have yet to be converted to electric are actually typically much smaller. You know, we know that you can build an electric sports car with, you know, a thousand kilowatts, you know, there's megawatt sports cars. You, you can build, you know, sedans and so on with four or five hundred kilowatts that go really quickly. What we haven't done is taken the vehicles that are much more normal. You know, if you take the, the you know the cars that you see every day in in an urban setting, uh, you know, a small hatchback that today will have a one liter, one point two liter gasoline engine, it produces seventy seventy five kilowatts. That segment has not yet started really the conversion to electrification. Yet it represents a huge amount of both historical and future. Uh, requirements. So we've, uh, you know, in consultation with it within the group, we've really said that's an important market. It's one that's perhaps underserved at the moment. So, you know, classic white space, if you like, in marketing terms, it's a thing that uh, not so many people are doing. Um, and also you talk about two and three wheelers, you know, that, that one is much more the fact that there are people in that market today, but there just aren't enough for the demand. It's a huge growing demand. And because we're seeing the interest in decarbonisation coming very strongly from developing countries because the, they perhaps haven't ruined their environments just yet with too many larger vehicles, so they really want to focus on getting those small vehicles with small, modest power requirements in, in volume. So, you know, there's a, there's a couple of sweet spots that we see. One is perhaps in the uh, maybe 10 kilowatts, 15 kilowatts range, uh, which gives you power for a lot of those uh, urban vehicles, you know, last mile delivery vehicles. You don't need to go very fast. It also, by the way, suits the 
uh, you know, so-called autonomous pods, you know, the the things that we're all being told we're going to be driven around in in cities. I'm not quite convinced about that in volume yet, but, you know, they all need modest propulsion power. Um, and then you step up and you've got this, uh, you know, 70 kilowatt or so range. And there you've got you know, millions of vehicles in production today that in the next 20 years will have to become electric. And to do so, they'll have to also have quite small batteries because they're quite small cars. So that's the reason we've gone there. There, there are actually some really good motor solutions for more powerful things today. Sometimes they're not very efficient, and I think we can help in that area. But, you know, as Nick said, whilst our focus is quite broad, we've actually got to focus the resources of the company on doing a couple of things really well, not trying to do absolutely everything. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, we get lots and lots of inquiries from lots and lots of people, and the answer is always yes. We've actually just started looking inward and saying the answer isn't necessarily always yes right away. Uh, the answer is yes in time, but for now we've got to focus on a couple of of hot spots, if you like. So it does appear that we are specialising in smaller things. It's not really the choice because they're small. It's actually the choice because they're really important for the future. And they're also areas where high efficiency is very, very quickly rewarded. It's a very important uh, uh, part of the equation and one of the reasons why we haven't electrified those segments yet. So, yeah, it's, it's a good observation by you that we were in there. But it's not quite as straightforward as just having picked it. We, we actually, it's a strategic choice at the moment. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we're not focusing on trying to compete with everybody in the larger traction motor space because uh, it, it's a battle that somebody else can fight and we'll get to it later. But as I said, actually, uh, small engine systems, they would also be a great impact on the market because this comes much, much closer to the reality what the people actually need and what they use nowadays. Statistically, I mean, a lot of people talk about like uh, a huge range and so on, but they do not need it, actually. When you come down to what they use per day, especially in the urban areas, yeah, there's huge difference. Yeah, th th that's exactly another of the... Uh, of the positive influences that COVID has had. And, you know, I, I don't, don't like to suggest that it is a positive influence on the world. It's clearly been tragedy for a lot of people. But the the social impact of it has been to force people to think. And, you know, because so many people have been working from home, they've been looking out their front door at their vehicles, you know, in the driveway and saying, how far have I driven that this week? How far did I really need to drive it when I've got a government telling me not to go out unless I need to? I don't drive very much. If I go out because I want to, then I drive too much. So I think you do have a lot of people. And actually, back at Tata, we did a consumer study where we offered them a, a modest range electric vehicle. And without fail, everybody who joined that study said, well, what's the, what's the exit route if after a week I find that it doesn't suit me? Because I don't think it's got enough range. And so we gave them a way out. After three months most people were satisfied and after 12 months we couldn't get the cars back off people from you know they were on a fixed lease they wouldn't give them back because they they had adapted their life minor adaptions to their life and they were now able to live with the car and in that case it only had 100 miles of range you know 160 kilometers of range so even smaller than what people today say is an inadequate electric car and it was perfectly fine And people were, were using, you know, 80, 90, 90% of their range confidently every day if they needed to because they got used to it. 
So, you know, I think we've we've now got people who are challenging themselves to say, not to say, oh, I don't think I can use an electric car. They're now saying, maybe I should try. Um, and, you know, I'm also encouraged by the fact there's a lot of um, short lease schemes available now in various markets where people can uh, lease a vehicle on, you know, quite a, a short time period. And if they don't like it, they go back. But, you know, the statistics about, you know, the so-called recidivism rate of people who go back from EV to ICE is tiny percentage. You know, people do like EVs when they get them. And it isn't just supercar EVs. It's normal EVs too. So, you know, I think we're, um, we're learning to live with lower travel distance. And if we can do it with, a, with efficient electric cars, the multiplier effect is not just traveling less far on IC engines, it's traveling less far on something that's got less environmental impact than IC as well. So you multiply up the benefits there. Absolutely, could not agree more. And Dave, now, by knowing the structures of corporate business so well, it's a perfect question for you. How did startups in your past inspire you so much that you were willing to do joint projects? What are the key points for successful collaboration? And now really not related to ePropel, but rather as advice to all the tech startups. So, yeah, you're very correct to ask me that question because over the years we've participated, as Tata Motors, we participated in a number of collaborative projects. And, uh, you know, in the UK, certainly, there's been a very strong culture to support tech startups, tech you know, companies with great technical ideas and do so in a collaborative environment. The UK government's been, you know, got lots of generous schemes to do that. Uh, it happens in the US as well, and it happens, you know, across other countries. We have encountered some great partners through that, and we've encountered some not-so-great partners. The fact that you have to be in tune with your collaborators is really important. And if you're, if you're the OEM, you tend to feel that you know everything because you're the guy facing the end customer. You're the... You know, you're doing the B2C sale, not the B2B. And many of the, the tech startups have the problem that they don't understand what the business of their customer is about. So, so they tend to take an attitude that says, well, our technology is perfect. I don't know what your problem is, but our technology is perfect. And all you need to do is come and see our point of view. The best collaborations are those where All the partners you know, get together and agree that they all understand the big picture problem. They don't all have full expertise in it, but they all recognize that it is you know, a basic truth of the, of the collaboration of the partnership. It's why I think you know, the wisdom that Nick is bringing to this organization is to have people who've got experience in the industries that we're selling to, as well as the industry that we are actually representing. So all the guys in the company aren't all electric motor guys. Some of them have come from industries that are on the receiving end of our technology. And of course, you know, I'm one of those people. And that hopefully is going to give us the ability to act as a, an intelligent startup. And it's certainly the advice that I would give to any startups trying to put uh, collaboration deals together, which involve, you know, both upstream and downstream collaborations, is be sensitive to the people around you and respect what they know because the moment you say you know oh no i'm the guy with the patent i'm the guy with the great idea you guys just have to follow me i've been in some of those collaborations which fail because uh, it's simply impossible 
to sit in a meeting with guys who you think are just talking nonsense because they don't understand the big picture. So it's all about respecting you know, what everybody around you knows. You know, in the daily meetings that we have, you know, the, one of the, the, the things that Nick is always asking people is, you know, what are our challenges today? What, what, what have we got customers doing? What have, we, what have we got suppliers doing? How are we going to get around these issues? And, uh, you know, I think you do have to have this 360-degree vision. You have to be looking all around you and being reactive to, to the whole world. And actually, you know, from my experience, observing a lot of collaboration forming and succeeding, but also failing, it's rarely about B2B or B2C. It's always H2H. So it's human to human, actually, in the end. And as you said, because it's human to human, it's always based on respect and trust. And now we are going to change the view. Nick, you have the best view from the startup side because you have led so many tech startups to success. What do you think is the best strategy for successful collaboration, especially when it comes to collaboration between startups and global players? Actually, the best way to approach this stuff, as you just said, is people to people. Okay, you have to actually find people in the industry you know, that you can really relate to and they can relate to you. If you can actually do that, then the second step is that you have to understand their problems. And sometimes you may have problems and you always concentrate on your problems, but that's not the successful recipe for collaboration. You know, so I think you have to actually understand people, make connections. And I think that You know, this team actually, besides having a lot of technology knowledge, we actually have people now in this company that really talk to people at the people level. And, you know, they understand, especially the sales guys. We have Peter and we have Kenny in the UAV. Peter is in the, in the, um, uh, in the EV space, you know, and we have guys in India as well. You know, these guys actually are very good at, you know, making connections with people. The other thing is that, you know, they have experience making connections. They already have friends in the industry. This is very important to actually get people in, in the company that already have friends in the industry. Because then they say, well, you know, as we did with D David, you know, David, we got him on the advisory board and we have a fantastic advisory board. We have bankers, we have marketing guys, we have sales guys, we have people that are fundraising type of guys, an ex-CEO of one of the banks from Switzerland, actually, is, uh, oh, wow. is, is our, you know, uh, Credit Suisse, is uh, on our advisory board. So we have people that have connections. And so that's a good way to actually do this stuff, whether it's funding the company, which is, you know, my problem all the time, not the rest of the guys, or it's actually going out in the industry and making connections happen. The next level is to understand the problems that the part, our partners actually have. And that's not always so obvious. You really have to dig down and sometimes you have to really talk things through because in some cases they may not understand the problems they have. They know they have problems, but they don't really know what they are. So I think the third problem, the third thing is to actually work out together solutions to the problems. And if you can do this, then you really do have a winning formula. And then, you know, once the last piece is actually trust, being upfront and trust, getting trust of the people, 
telling them that certain things are not going well. Okay, telling them early rather than late. These types of things build trust because then they can actually say, we know they're doing okay because if they weren't doing okay, they're going to come and tell us they're really screwing up. It's okay to do that. A lot of, lot of entrepreneurs out there and teams of management teams, they are too scared to actually talk honestly to their customers. Because what will they think? Well, you have to ask the question. They also have problems. It's okay to share your problems. This is a real key to, to actually developing trust, to developing camaraderie with your partners. And you got to think of them as partners. If we may actually act like we're, you know, for instance, if it's a tier one supplier, okay, they now have to go and sell this brand new technology that they don't understand at all. So you got to be able to, you know, they got to be able to take you and say, this is my young brother, you know, and he will tell you all about the new things because he's younger than me. It's okay to do that. All of this stuff is okay, you know, and so I think that is, to me, is the um, key uh, to actually developing these type of relationships, being honest, winning their trust, solving their problems, and totally getting mutually in with them. And I think, you know, if you can do that successfully, you can actually have a successful relationship. It doesn't matter whether you're having a relationship with your friend or member of your family or your customer. If you can actually develop that kind of relationship, you're going to be successful. You named now a lot of very wise key points when it comes to collaboration and networking and actually this kind of professional friendships yeah, in the end. How did you come to that? I mean, have you also had your hard lessons in life to come to this kind of wisdom? I think at the end of the day, experience makes you think about things and say, boy, that didn't really work out. If you don't learn those lessons, then you're bound to repeat them. And again, I, you know, I'm from the internet world and internet world, you know, back in the 90s, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. You know, you didn't really have to work very hard. You would just go bang and, you know, you got dinner and it happens to be in a bucket. You know, that's what I used to call it. I think it's a really interesting thing. And I've ended up working at Cisco. And believe it or not, Cisco ships $1 billion of products and services every week. Okay. Wow. I mean, that's a large, when you, you know, it, it's like, you don't even think about this stuff. But when you actually think about it and you sit back and say, boy, what did I just say? Billion dollars a week. And I, I've seen that. I've seen that happen. So then you go back into the startup because this is your blood, you know, it's, it's in you. So you go back and say, I know what those guys' problems are. So we have people, not just me, but people like David, people knows what their problems are. That's why I value his opinion so much. That's why he was on the advisory board. That's why he's on the inside. If he never did anything and we talked, you know, once a month, it will be enough. But, you know, we got them full time. We're so lucky. And I feel the same way with uh, my marketing guy. I'm so lucky. He, uh, we worked 30 years ago together and we built successful companies. 
And so it's like putting the band back together. You know, uh, we have engineers here that we know really well for many years. We know what they can do. We know they're going to come in and tell us that I need this. You better go and get it. Otherwise, I can't deliver this to you. You know, and they're strong enough to actually be able to interact this way. And that's the kind of teams that I like to build. I'm not the kind of person who's going to sit here and give orders. That's not the way it works. It's like understanding my own guys' problems and understanding our, our customers' problems and winning respect and uh, trust inside the company as well as outside the company. That's, that's my mantra to any entrepreneur who wants to go out and do it. And you know, this is a great appreciation for you because you go out and you build a new startup and you take your people with you and they are willing to follow you. This is a great appreciation. That's right. I think, I, I always think that about managers. I always think managers should have coattails and people should be riding on those coattails. So you bring a senior guy in, he's got to be able to bring in, you know, three, four, five people in the company. And he already knows them. And if you like that manager, he has right ways of doing things, then people that he's worked with also would have had right ways of doing things. This is a great way to hire, actually. People that know people and work with each other, then you know that you're not going to have frictions. You're not putting together a team that's like nobody's met each other before. And everybody's trying to wonder, you know, can I trust this guy? Can't I trust this guy? Can he be friendly and all that kind of stuff? This is a accelerated way of actually building a startup. Building trust in the teams. And actually, this is how successful teams are built, right? And talking about success, Dave, based on all your professional and life experience, how do you define success in life these days? So as you pointed out earlier in the uh, in the call, Admila, uh, I'm a little older than, uh, than than you are. So success is getting out of bed every morning. That's that, that's a major achievement. But seriously, the the making a contribution is what it's all about, and feeling that you can close down the, the, everything at the end of the day, and actually look back and say, yeah, you know, that was something good. That was something that contributed to the big vision of the company. I helped one of my colleagues out. I helped a customer out. You know, it's all about making a contribution and doing so at a uniform rate. You know, I used to think you had to do something grand and big and, uh, uh, you know, something spectacular all the time. But, you, you, you know, that isn't the way the world works. It's built brick by brick. As long as you can feel that, you know, you didn't push anything backwards, you didn't upset anybody, you didn't really drive any, any friction into the company, uh, that's, that's the great achievement. And... Uh, you know, as as Nick has just been saying, the communication and the, uh, you know, the camaraderie that's there actually enables all that to happen. And, you know, we get endless opportunities every day to help somebody out. And stepping forward to do that is really a great thing. Does it mean also helping out like in, in the meaning of mentoring? Does it mean also to, to mentor somebody to become successful, somebody who is much, much younger, maybe? Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, Nick's mentioned that you know we've got our team over in India, for example, and both Peter, our sales director, and and I are both sort of acting as mentors in different capacities for a couple of those guys. They're young, they're enthusiastic, they're super hardworking, but they they came to us actually and said, you know, we would like to get wisdom, and you know they took the initiative to put you know, an hour a week onto the calendar for a you know a call like this, a one to one chat 
And at the end of the day, leaving them with a smile on their face saying, yeah, that was great. You know, I, I imparted some of the, you know, the 40 years of wisdom that I've had from, from the industry. Um, and just a little bit of it has rubbed off on somebody else. And they've added it to their unique experience that I don't have. You know, it is the way that we, we accumulate knowledge and that we build, you know, the, the, the sum being the, 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 you know, greater than the, uh, than the individual parts is really what we've got to strive for. And that's because somebody will take a piece of knowledge that you've got and take it somewhere that you would never take it because you don't have three other things going on that, that, that can add to it. And like I say, it's about the contribution. It's making that contribution and you know, putting it all together and then seeing the, seeing the magic happen, basically, and uh, you know, chemistry between different, different uh, pieces of the, the puzzle. And for a team, it's always like this. No? So, I mean, you are just as strong as your weakest member. And Nick, I know that you are a passionate pilot. Where do you need more nerves of steel? In entrepreneurship or in flying? And is there anything that this great hobby has made you realize about life or about business? Actually, um, a really interesting thing. I guess, you know, nerves of steel meaning that you don't, you don't have any nerves, actually. <laughs> So, uh, you know, um, I, I have lots of lots of uh, interesting hobbies because I'm a risk taker. You know, I, I do vintage racing and, um, uh, you know, I do flying. I've been flying for 30 years. But every now and then you come to um, issues in racing. For instance, I was at one time uh, coming down and it was very wet. All of a sudden the car gave way and then it started spinning doing 360s. And there are people around you. And the time in those instances actually slows down. And so all you can do is say, there's nothing I can do. It's not, I'm, I can't stop this spinning. So I know I'm going to crash into the wall. So let me just put my hands together so that, you know, I, I don't have to, uh, I don't break my, you know, limbs or something like that. Uh, I think in a way, entrepreneurship is a little like that as well. First time I had an issue in the plane, I remember the plane went into service. They did a generator replacement and they put the belt on. So I took off. This was in the evening, probably seven, eight o'clock. I took off and belt came off and I didn't realize the belt came off. So it wasn't charging anymore. So the battery was running down and all of a sudden the whole panel went blank and the engine kept running because it was on magnetos. So the engines kept running. And I'm there with nothing, no radios, no lights, nothing. So immediately, you know, immediately you go into hyper, um, you know, drive kind of thing. Shut everything off, shut the battery, shut everything off, and you just keep on flying. And then you basically become very calm in those situations. And then you actually, you know, go back to the airport. And now, you know, you're dark. Nobody can actually see you. You can't talk to the, the control or anything like that. You just assume that things are going to be okay. So you come in, and all of a sudden, we're about to land. I put the switch on to the battery, put the undercarriage down, and sure enough, the undercarriage went, and it actually locked. There was just enough left, you know, so you have to act very quickly. So these are the... So in a way, it was, it was terrifying, and yet it came out okay. Once you've been through all these type of situations, you realize... Boy, there really isn't that much you can't handle anymore, you know. So same thing here. Um, you know, you're an entrepreneur. I remember at one of the companies, we, we were actually offered a um, certain amount of money. 
not, nobody in the company wanted to be part of this company. So, you know, I, I had to actually say, I don't think so. You know, I don't think we want to sell to you guys, you know. And so then, then you're, you know, now you have to go back to the um, investors and actually say, by the way, they made us an offer, but we don't want to take it. You know, that's, that's pretty tough, right? It's a tough thing. But I did that and I got blasted, you know, in, in the board meeting. You wouldn't believe how bad it was, you know. And then all of a sudden, a month later, another offer came and it was much higher. And they didn't, you know, and then so basically we said, we got an offer. And the, the next board meeting we had, I said, we got another offer, you know, for the company. And um, they said, how much is it? And I told them the number 20% below, because this was not in the board meeting, it was before the board meeting. And then when I went in there in the board meeting, I said, it's actually this much, which is 20% more. I thought they would really like me. They really almost jumped down my throat and said, you lied to us. We already told all our partners that this is what the company's gonna go for. I said, don't worry, your partners will get used to it. So these are the kinds of things that you actually sort of go through. And eventually you say, boy, you know, uh, you know, uh, it's not that bad. You know, nothing is as bad as you think. Nothing is as good either as you might think. So once you get used to these ideas, you know, entrepreneurship is pretty easy. So it's more like enjoy the process. It's not the goal where you are going. It's much more the process. That's right. And this was actually the most scariest story I ever heard on our podcast. Definitely about the plan. <laughs> not about the board meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Really, definitely. <laughs> Actually, I've had more problems. I remember one time we took off and the Air Force guys, they didn't want to take off. I said, come on, let's go. It can't be that bad. We went in there and all of a sudden we went into a thunderstorm, lightning all around us. And all of a sudden the plane got hit with lightning. And I thought there would be a hole in it because the whole plane went up and down. And... You know, it was like the dials wanted to actually sort of come out of their out of their glass kind of thing, you know. And I was so sure there'd be a big hole underneath and there wasn't. And then we sort of went out of this this thunderstorm, went and landed. You know, the only thing we lost was the radar. Otherwise, it was everything was great, you know. Yes, I said nerves of steel. I mean, that's how you prepare yourself for really basically everything. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what it takes to be an entrepreneur, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> impressive, impressive, definitely. Thank you. Dave, what is your best advice for people working in multicultural projects? Because you have a lot of experience with multicultural projects. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great question. And it's obviously one that... Uh, You know, the world has become a much smaller place during the, the period of my career. You know, it was uh, exciting for me as a young engineer in the UK to be, uh, you know, having to travel to Germany, for example, for a meeting. But uh, but now, you know, we, we're traveling halfway around the world or or Zooming halfway around the world uh, on a regular basis. And obviously, you know, the specializations, you know, Nick referred earlier to the, the kind of uh, operations we've got going on in India Uh, obviously, I've had the privilege of of being um, able to live and work in in inside an Indian company in India, as well as in an Indian company outside of India, and that teaches you a great deal because you know they're two. Well, you, British culture and Indian culture have got certain certain connections, but uh, but also very many differences. And you know, I think the the curiosity 
to understand the other person's point of view is really what you need. And so, you know, getting to know those people and understand their lives and appreciate the pressures that they might be under that don't really make sense in your culture, but are absolutely important to their culture is vital. And, and you know, certainly during the, the, the first few months that I spent living in India, I, I was very fortunate that a few of my colleagues and uh, you know, people who were, were reported to me in the organisation even, um, sort of took me under their wing and they helped to educate me into some of the cultural the, the cultural wisdom that I needed in order to survive daily life in India. And, uh, you know, occasionally they'd pick me up on some things where I would use a phrase or say something in a particular way and they would come and say, you know what, you don't really say things like that, you don't do that. And you, you put it away in your data bank and, you know, no offence is taken and, and you don't do it again. So, you know, I, I think listening and understanding, it, it's the same message we've talked about throughout this conversation about... Uh, you know, understanding people, communicating with people. And, uh, you know, frankly, I, I think that the multicultural, uh, the multicultural world that we have today, whether it's different cultures coexisting in one country or whether it's the uh, transactions we have to make between different countries, um, is so much a more normal thing today. I mean, you know, I know we, we hear the headlines about, uh, uh, you know, terrible interracial tension in certain ways and, uh, uh, you know, b- bad behaviour. But frankly, the reason that stuff makes the news is because it is so unusual and life does go on most of the time perfectly well. Uh, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, the US, of course, is a is a classic multicultural society and, you know, a young country with people from all over the place. And I did, again, you know, live, lived in the US for 15 years. Um, and there you see people with absolutely different cultural beliefs all of whom count themselves as Americans, but they're they're absolutely from different places in in their past lives, and maybe only one or two generations before were living and and operating in completely different worlds. So, you know, unconsciously, I think we all are dealing with a multicultural world in ways that we don't even recognise as being multicultural. It's just the way differences between people and the differences between life. So I think as long as you're, you know, sensitive... And, you know, only the same sensitivity you'd show to somebody in your own culture, as long as you understand that you can't necessarily assume that everybody else thinks the way you do, um, then you can get along. And multicultural teams work great. Um, they bring richness. They bring diversity that, that helps you to do things much better ways. You know, our Indian colleagues understand the value of money, for example, uh, in a di- totally different way than those of us who've grown up in Western society. And so they don't let us squander money on things that, that are unnecessary if there's another way. And it's great to have that perspective. You know, I'm multicultural myself and I would never trade that for anything in my life because it's really a huge part of my identity, actually, at all the languages and all the cultures. And uh, is then the key point actually to be open-minded and let's say if something goes wrong, then... Just don't take things personally, because it's usually not about you. It's about the background. It's about the beliefs, the culture, religion, and so on. Yeah, exactly. You know, there are certain environments where making a small mistake is actually punished pretty pretty badly, and you can be getting yourself in big trouble. But, um, uh, you know, generally, most, uh, I think, educated people have got enough 
awareness of what's around them and that you know whenever i travel to a new country which you know not 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 so many countries that i haven't been to now but but when you do travel to a new country you always feel those first day or two that you're in that country you're quite um heightened awareness about what's going on around you because you need to understand and read what's happening a little bit uh, and, and you perhaps don't say quite as much as you would otherwise say but once you've felt you're at home in, in a particular place then um, you know you can loosen up a bit and you can actually push the boundary of what you say a little bit and what you do knowing that you're not going to get into into huge trouble so um, yeah but it's like any relationship you know you've got to understand the other person's point of view and be aware and sensitive you know I mentioned it in my leadership style awareness of what the other guy is thinking of or the lady is thinking um it, it's 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 what it's about just you know uh, you know as they say one mouth and two ears there's a reason for that you're supposed to listen uh listen to what's going on and respond not just continually bombard people with your views yes it's all connected i mean we are all humans this is why business is also about a relationship between people and nick would you mind sharing a life motto with us boy um It's uh, pretty simple. It's have fun, have passion, make a difference, and leave a mark. Okay, and look, I've got you. Got to have lots of friends. You got to. So you know, people that I work with are friends. People, customers are friends, and you know, people I play with, vintage racing guys are friends. There's a lot of lot of different friends. You know, so I think I think that's pretty much it. Fun is a very big part of it, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, making a difference is also a big part of it. Thank you for sharing. Really, really super. Yeah. And Dave, what is your life motto? I've had to think quite hard about this one, uh, Ludmilla, to be quite honest. Uh, I, I think the, the, the best one I was really able to come up with is that you have to expect the unexpected. If I rewind to, you know, even two or three years ago, I don't think I'd have said I would be sitting in this uh, this forum today. That I'd be, you know, become one of Nick's friends, one of Nick's circle. Uh, and likewise, you know, I go back twenty five, thirty years. You know, I didn't expect I'd leave Jaguar, and I did, and I I, I formed a career. So, you know, I, th I think not being so set in your ways and being able to celebrate the unexpected is is a pretty good way to go through life. Um, and. Uh, Uh, you know, Nick, Nick's mentioned a few unexpected events that have happened to him in his life. You have to just have that confidence that if something unexpected happens, you find a way to work with it. So, you know, yeah, expect the unexpected. I would add one more because, I, you know, um, I always need something positive in that. Something like, um, in, it might work out. <laughs> something <laughs> like, because, you know, a lot of people say, what if you fail? Yes, but what, what if you fly, right? <laughs> and usually people don't think in this way. And as an entrepreneur, you maybe need to do this. And actually, I have a promise for you. I will write it down after the podcast recording. I will print it and I will hang it here in the office. <laughs> Huge problem because I love both models. Really love it. <laughs> Ludmilla, I'm curious. What is your life model? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> There are actually many. <laughs> There's never give up. Uh, find your passion and go your way. And yeah, this kind of thing, like really choosing your way and going and following your dreams and nothing is impossible, as I already said. So. Yeah, everything what is positive, enthusiastic, optimistic, that's, that is my way to see life. And actually, 
I was never disappointed so far. Even something bad happened, I made always the best out of it. And sometimes it ended up to be better than it was before. And actually all the time it ended up better. So, and I'm still going and going. And yeah, I can tell you I'm, I'm 37. So there's still a lot to do. And I hope I will never stop exactly as you, I, I told you. You both, I, I found my role model when it comes to getting older and having this kind of energy and enthusiasm and, and doing acting and never relate anything what you do to an age, to a number. This is really just a number. Thank you. Thank you for that. As always, time passes so quickly. Thank you both, Nick and Dave, for sharing with me your energy, your enthusiasm, your vision for e-propelled and electric propulsion in general. Your motivation is tangible and every listener will wish they had found their own purpose. It is a different level of communication with people who are working exactly in their element. That is so evident. Thank you for this inspiration. And may it indeed be that e-propel technology leads the future of electric propulsion. All the very best for you. Ludmilla, thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, to have this conversation. Uh, you know, I know there's a, a serious purpose to putting this information out in the world, but I, I think that we've been speaking as friends and uh, uh, really enjoyed the opportunity to uh, to walk through the journey we're on now and share that with you, your listeners. And thank you very much for the opportunity. And of course, we would extend a, an invitation to you that whenever you're physically in one of the countries that we're operating in, Uh, we would welcome you coming to visit us and uh, seeing what we're really all about. So thank you very much. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll see you soon. Thank you also. You are super, super welcome. And uh, definitely when I'm around, I will come and visit. I love to visit startups because it's such an inspiring atmosphere. It's it's You cannot compare it with anything else, actually. I get a lot of energy from that. Ludmilla, let me say, first of all, thank you so much. I hope you think that you made some friends here. And I certainly... I'm very glad to meet you and call you my friend. And hopefully one day we will have some fun. I, I would, you know, go further as David did. Please come whenever you can. And if you have a chance, come and stay in New Hampshire at, at my house. It's open, okay? And, you know, I, it's always open to friends. Uh, you know, Dave, David knows that we, we, we've had pretty much Everybody at, um, you know, e-propelled has been there one, one time or another. But if you are at one of our locations, we would love to meet you, have a drink, you know, have a bite to eat and learn more about each other. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much. Definitely. I promise you, as soon as the pandemic is a little bit, it's never going to be a way. But anyway, as soon as things are normalized, I will come and see. And definitely I see it as well. It was not like a working on podcast. It was a conversation between friends and it was a super pleasure and a lot of fun. Exactly as you said, work has to be fun. And I also found my passion. So let's just have fun. <laughs> pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much. Thank you as well. There are many ways to achieve a more sustainable future. There are many companies and innovative leaders who choose and actively go very different ways. Let's just not forget one thing. No matter how different the ways are, the big goal is one and the same. See you very soon in the next episode.